Good morning. Welcome again to Hiawatha. Got my water cup in without spilling this time. I spilled a little bit for service. We are glad you're here this morning. We say that a lot throughout the course of a service, but we mean it. It's great to have you here. So, uh, my name is Jesse. We're in about a third of the way through a series in the book of Acts. And I am one of the elders here at Hiawatha, which means I get to preach a couple times a year, which is great. I love doing that. Uh, so this is a joy for me. So tomorrow is April Fool's Day. So we were thinking about what we could do in kind of that April's Fool vein. So I thought maybe I could get Chris's sermon PowerPoint from last week and start preaching last week's passage. And people go, oh no, he got the wrong, he got it all mixed up. What do we do? We heard this one already. Or Peter was saying, we could, uh, Peter could text Mark this morning, who's the newest elder that came on and say, hey, we just found out Jesse's sick, you have to be here in 30 minutes to preach. <laughs> April Fool's, but we did not do either of those things, so decided against it. We, uh, yeah. But those were a few of the thoughts. So. Uh, so no April Fool's surprises, anything that might seem that way as I'm preaching is unintentional. <laughs> Hopefully there won't be anything. But we are in Acts, and we will be in Acts till right before Christmas. This is a great book, seeing how the Holy Spirit through the Apostles uh, creates and then expands the church throughout, at that time, uh, basically the Roman world. And we are in Acts 9 today, second half of Acts 9. So, I will read the passage and then we'll do a few review and kind of side things and then get into the passage. Acts 9, 32 through 43, and we're going to see Peter in a couple different cities interacting with some believers today. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Acts. Thank you for the church, that it was your will that it would exist, and that it would expand, and that it would endure. I pray, God, that uh, your spirit would speak through me this morning as I'm preaching and that uh, your word would speak to all of us this morning to encourage us and uh, to remind us of who you are and what you've done. Amen. All right, so quick review. Verse 32, it starts out as Peter went here and there among them all. 
So verse 31 from last week. Last week, the first half of nine was the conversion of Saul. So he gets converted. He meets Jesus on the road on his way to persecute a bunch of Christians and gets converted and then does some preaching and a few other things happen. And after this happens, verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So now verse 32, Peter is going here and there among them all. So he's visiting different churches. So you've got all these different congregations, and Peter's going and he's visiting them to encourage them, to teach them, do some guest preaching, maybe correct any uh, false ideas or teaching that have filtered in. But that's what he's doing. He's going around. And we're going to see a snapshot of, in his travels, two of the towns and the churches in those towns that he visits. Second, a quick aside, it's not really part of the passage, but uh, good to cover. So the word saints comes up a few times in this passage in 32 and 41. Peter came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda, then calling the saints and widows. So uh, we're going to define real quick what saints means. If you grew up in the Catholic or Lutheran church, you may have a slightly different idea of what the word saint means when you hear that than what the New Testament tends to mean when it uses that word. So New Testament, when it uses the word saint, it means any believer, anyone who is a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 and other verses also make that clear. Paul writes in Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who are the saints? All believers. If you're here in this room and you are a Christian, then you are a saint because you are one of those who in some place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you are being sanctified in him. Uh, so just to have that out there, so as we're going through the passage, we know when Peter references saints, he means all the believers that he's interacting with, not just uh, specifically holy or righteous people or people who've done certain things. Then, for those of you visual learners or those who enjoy geography, we've got a little map of where we are. So we've got Jerusalem right here. That's kind of the home base for the apostles until they eventually get kicked out. So Peter, when he leaves to visit the churches. He starts here because that's where he was staying. And he goes and visits the churches. Here's Lydda. It's about 25 miles from Jerusalem to Lydda. And here's Joppa on the coast, about 10 miles from Lydda to Joppa. So Peter leaves here, goes to the churches, ends up here, and ends up here today in our story. Uh, but then also, it references Sharon in the passage. It says the people in Lydda and Sharon. Sharon is not a town. Sharon's a region. You can see it right here, Plain of Sharon. So up here, where it hooks back in, this is Mount Carmel, which is not on the map. So the plain of Sharon extends from Lida at its southern end all the way up to Mount Carmel, so to about here, because the mountain's this area, and obviously it's a plain, so it doesn't include the mountainous region. Um, and then the border is not exactly this line, but for today's purposes, it's close enough. So basically, this little rectangle here, this is the plain of Sharon, which will... Uh, factor in when we get there. All right, so there's some background, uh, a little bit of orientation of where we are and where Peter's traveling, give it a little bit of context. Now, to the passage. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So 
I said already, he's traveling, visiting different churches. He comes to Lida in the course of his travels, and he comes to the saints there. He's visiting the church, the believers. He's going to go, he's going to encourage them, spend some time with them, do some teaching and preaching to them. That's what he's out doing. So he gets there. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So first we're going to talk a little bit about Aeneas, get to know him a little, then we'll talk about the miracle, and then talk about what's the point. So first, Aeneas was probably not a believer. We don't know for sure, but if you look at how he's referenced in the passage, he's just called a man. And if you compare that to how Dorcas is referenced, she's called a disciple. And throughout the New Testament, when people are referring to believers, they'll all often call them disciples, brothers and sisters, believers, uh, family, title like that. So the fact that Aeneas is just called a man and not a brother or a saint or a disciple or anything like that means he's probably not a believer. We don't know for sure, but probably not. Also, he's paralyzed, as it tells us. And not just he's become paralyzed recently or this is a new thing. He's been bedridden for eight years. So paralyzed, unable to walk, unable to use his legs for eight years. Which means also, again, we don't know for sure, but probably he was poor. Unless he had family that was taking care of him. Because being paralyzed and bedridden, in this culture, agricultural culture, he can't go out and work the fields if his legs don't work. So he probably doesn't have a job. So he's paralyzed, probably poor, probably not a believer. And he's just laying around, and Peter finds him. So that's Aeneas. Now, the miracle... Peter finds him and says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. few things to point out about this healing. One, Jesus does it, not Peter. Jesus is working through Peter. Peter doesn't say, Aeneas, I heal you, or Aeneas, by my power, or my cool giftedness that allows me to do miraculous things, I make you walk. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. So Peter makes it crystal clear that he's not doing this himself, he's doing it under the power of God. And keep in mind again, if Aeneas is not a believer, Peter explicitly says, Jesus Christ heals you. To make it clear to this guy who doesn't know who Jesus is, hey, there's this guy named Jesus, and in his name now, you're going to be healed. And then I'm going to tell you some other cool things that Jesus did, even greater than this physical healing you're about to experience. So Jesus does it, Peter doesn't do it under his own power. Also, the healing is immediate and fully effective. Immediately he rose. Now remember, he'd been bedridden for eight years. And unlike today, if someone's paralyzed and their legs don't work, now there are machines and there are things you can do to keep your muscles from completely atrophying. You can keep them somewhat healthy and somewhat in shape, not completely, but somewhat not so at this time. He's been laying around for eight years, his legs have atrophied. But Peter doesn't say, be healed, and then some other guys come and lift him up, and they hobble him around the square a few times, and his legs slowly get stronger, and then he's on crutches for a few months, and then finally he can walk. Peter says, rise and make your bed, and he does it. Immediately it works. Immediately his legs go from atrophied to fully functional and strong. Immediately he can walk and rise. So Jesus Christ is the one who does the healing. 
And the power of God, this healing, is immediate and it's fully effective. He doesn't get up and then fall down again and say, whoops, that was like 50%. Can you do it one more time and get me the rest of the way there? So this is great. This is this really cool supernatural event that happens. This guy was laying there, not expecting he was going to get healed. And then a few minutes after, you know, he's talking to Peter and then he's up and he's walking around. Probably not how he thought his day was going to go. This is great. But there's something even better. Verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. And this is the point. There's a lot of healings that happen in Acts, a lot of supernatural events that happen. And those are great. God certainly cares about people's bodies. He cares about their physical well-being. But he cares even more about their spiritual well-being. And whenever a physical healing happens, the two things we should think are, wow, that's really cool. God is so awesome and powerful. But also, wow, that physical healing's cool, but God did something even more awesome and even more powerful spiritually when he healed me from sin. And we know this from Jesus' own words. I don't have a uh, slide for this. But in Mark, when Jesus is going about and he's preaching and teaching, there are some people that come to him and they're carrying a man who's paralyzed. And they come and set him before Jesus and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. And the reactions that happen is some people are like, wait, this is really confusing. How can you do that? I thought only God could forgive sins. And then some, well, that's not actually what we were hoping for. We were kind of hoping you'd make him walk like you have with these other people. And then Jesus, knowing the things they were saying and knowing the thoughts they had, says basically, in so many words, you're right, only God can forgive sins. And to show you that I have the authority from God to forgive sins, I'm going to heal him. And then he says to the paralyzed guy, get up and walk and take your bed and go home. And the guy does. So in the same way, when Peter here heals Aeneas and rises him up, and now he can walk, he does that primarily. So we would be reminded that even more powerfully, God can heal us from the paralysis of sin. All of us are Aeneas. It's easy reading uh, Acts to put ourselves in the place of the apostles, and that's not always wrong. We are believers and we are called to share the gospel. And so there are things within that that it's appropriate to do that at times. But much more in these scenarios, we are the person that's being interacted with. And the apostle represents Jesus. So Peter here represents Jesus. And we are like Aeneas. We are the ones who were paralyzed and bedridden. And note how it happens. Aeneas doesn't go looking for Peter. He doesn't even know he's there. He couldn't go looking for Peter. His legs don't work. Peter finds him, it says in the text, and heals him. And this man is not a believer. So Peter doesn't just go to people who were kind of on the inside and in that group. He finds this guy, not a believer, not expecting it, not searching for it, and heals him. In the same way, God comes to all of us. In our sinfully paralyzed and bedridden state, he finds us when we aren't even looking for him. He heals us and he raises us up. And that healing that he gives us is instantaneous and complete. Now, because sin still exists in the world, we don't yet experience the fullness of the completeness of it because there's still sin, and that still affects our lives and our bodies and our hearts and minds. But God says in his word that the healing he gives is complete and full. And if he says it, then it's true. 
If you're in this room and you're a believer, you were at one point like Aeneas spiritually. You were paralyzed in your sin. You were bedridden in your sin. You were spiritually atrophied. And God found you. And through Christ, he said to you, get up. And you did. He raised you and he healed you. And even when you don't feel that's true, it is because God did it. Also, back to the map for a second. Remember, Sharon's not a place. Well, Sharon is not a town, it's a region. And it says here, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. It doesn't say they heard about it, it says they saw him. So, all the residents of this region saw the man in Lydda. So, a few things might have happened. It might have been, this guy's been laying around for eight years. Suddenly, he can walk. Maybe he decides to go see the countryside a little bit. His legs are working again, he wants to put him to good use. So he travels through here, and as he travels, some people who were around this town would probably have recognized him. And would have said, hey, weren't you the guy that was laying around and your legs didn't work? Yeah, I was healed. There was this guy, Peter, who came through, and there's this guy, Jesus Christ, and I was healed. And let me tell you about it and tell you some other great things. So some of them probably heard that way. Others, they may have heard that Peter was in Lydda, and the apostles had somewhat of a reputation, and they might have heard, oh yeah, it's one of those guys who was with Jesus, and he's teaching and healing people. So people might have come to the town and then seen him. But it says they saw him, and they turned to the Lord. And that is ultimately the point of physical healings, biblically. And even in the world today, when we pray for God supernaturally to do something physical and heal someone, and it happens, it happens because, one, God cares about that person. But even more importantly, it happens to remind us of the spiritual healing that we have received that's even greater than the physical. We are all Aeneas, and God has healed us and raised us up. So that's Aeneas. And then Peter is still there in Lydda. And something else happens in Joppa. Remember about 10 miles away, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. It's like, great, thanks, Luke. Tabitha is Aramaic and Dorcas is Greek, but seeing as I don't speak Aramaic or Greek, translating it from one to the other doesn't help me. I still don't know what her name means. If you're curious, her name means gazelle in both, uh, the, both the Aramaic and the Greek. So now you know. But there's this disciple. She was full of good works and acts of charity. So she was a believer, she's a disciple, but also in the town of Joppa, she has this reputation Good works, acts of charity. She's helping people out in different ways. We're going to see some of what that is a little later in the passage. But for now, we just know this is who she was and her reputation. But then something happens. Verse 37, in those days, what days does Luke mean? He means the days where Peter was in Lydda. So in those days, while Peter is in Lydda, healing and teaching, Dorcas in Joppa became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So she's a disciple, she's a believer, she has this reputation in town, she's helping people out in different ways, very generous, good works, acts of charity. She becomes ill and she dies. And Peter is only 10 miles away in a neighboring town, so some people are going to go get him. But it's interesting here what Luke says they do with the body, the fact that they wash her and lay her in an upper room. Now, this could mean one of two things, and we don't know which one it is for sure, but this is unusual that they would wash her and lay her in, a, in an upper room for Jews. 
the goal was to get the body into the ground or into the cave, into the tomb, wherever it was going to be buried as quickly as possible. So the two possible or two most likely reasons why this isn't happening is one, they're in kind of an outlying town. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in a main city. So it could be that they don't have immediate access to the tomb, that they have to go somewhere to the tomb. And so her body's laying there either because of the time of day or for whatever reason, and it might be there for a day or two until they can get her where she needs to go. So that's one possibility. The other is that they had a tomb accessible, but they chose not to put her in it and instead to lay her out because they had heard Peter was close by and they figured he could help her out somehow. So they're kind of delaying what they should do, hoping that Peter can get there before the body starts to decompose too much and smell too bad and he can do something about it. But either way, the fact that they go and find Peter, they have this expectation that Peter is going to be able to help them somehow, that he's going to be able to do something. But the fact that the body is uh, washed and laid in an upper room is unusual. That is not what you would expect in this situation. So they do that, the body's waiting, and then Lida is near Joppa, as we've said already. And since that is true, the disciples, hearing Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. So Dorcas is dead. The disciples hear about it. They're like, hey, Peter, he's one of the apostles. He's been doing these miracles. He was with Jesus. Why don't we send you two to him? Go get him, find him in that town, see if he'll come back. And so they go, they find him. Please come to us without delay. They urge him. They're in a hurry. And Peter goes with them. Now this is interesting because in Acts so far, we have not seen any raising of the dead. Jesus did in his ministry a few times in the Gospels. So people who were believers would have been aware that this was a thing that had been done and was possible, that it's possible for the dead to be raised. Because they would have heard about Lazarus and some of these other people through the preaching that they would have heard from the apostles, through stories that would have spread among the believers from Jesus. But so far, none of the apostles have raised the dead. This is not something they've seen. So they do not know that Peter can do this. They have not seen him do this. Stories have not come to them that Peter is able to raise the dead. But they still call to him. They urge him to come. And Peter rises and goes with them. Peter, who is in Lydda with believers and unbelievers, teaching them, healing, preaching, he leaves that and goes to Joppa to uh, see what they want. And as we know, to raise Tabitha from the dead. So he goes and he arrives. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. So he's in the room now with the body. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So now we know her acts of charity and good works. What were they? Well, at least partially it was sewing. Could have been more than that. But she was making clothing for widows. That was part, a big part of her reputation in town, the good works and the acts of charity that she was doing. And keep in mind, at this time in this culture, widow was very, very bad. Not just like, not cultural reputation, but just in terms of what it meant for your livelihood and ability to exist. Like today, obviously, if someone's a widow, that's very sad and that's tragic. They've lost their spouse. But a widow can still get a job. A widow can get government assistance if they can't get a job for whatever reason. 
it's unlikely that just because they're a widow, they're going to starve to death or be out on the street. There are things they can do. That was not the case at this time. If you were a widow, if your husband died and you didn't have children to take care of you or other family around, you probably were not going to make it. Because as a woman, you couldn't really get a job. So you can't get a career, you can't sustain yourself. The house and wherever you lived would have belonged to your husband and would pass through his line. It would be possible maybe for it to pass to you, but highly unlikely. More likely if there was no family, it would be sold. And you wouldn't necessarily get any of the profits of that sale either. So as a widow, if you don't have family around, you're not going to be able to make a living for yourself and you may not have a place to sleep that night. So these widows that Dorcas was taking care of to some degree, at least making clothing for them, maybe other things we don't know, they're weeping, partly because they loved her and she's dead, as we all would weep for someone we loved that had died. But partly, as they're standing around showing the tunics and the garments that Dorcas made, they're, going, they're telling Peter, like, look, she made all this stuff for me. She helped me when I didn't have anyone to turn to. She gave me clothing when I couldn't provide it for myself, and now she's dead. What am I going to do? Where am I going to sleep? How am I going to survive? And also, if you look at the uh, Greek where it talks about them showing the tunics, you can tell from the tents and some other things with the word, it doesn't mean that they're holding them up. Like, oh look, I brought this tunic with when I heard she died so I could hold it. No, it means they're wearing them. So the clothing they're showing is clothing that they're wearing. So Peter's there and they're like, look at this tunic I'm wearing that she made. Isn't this great? She did this for me and now she's dead. So they're wearing the clothing she made, showing that to Peter, weeping, standing around, Dorcas is dead. What are they going to do? So now Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. It's interesting, isn't it, that he puts them all outside. They're all believers. They're people who loved her. So wouldn't you think Peter would leave them in the room so they could see the miracle happen and experience that joy and that awe and that wonder with Peter as he's doing this miracle? But he doesn't. He kicks them out of the room. And we see later, he's going to call them right back into the room after, or bring Dorcas out and present them to her. Like, they're going to be reunited in just a minute after the miracle happens. So why kick him out of the room while he's doing the miracle? Well, probably he does it so that none of the people in the room would have any ideas the miracle's happening, that they were somewhat responsible for it in some way. As believers thinking, oh, like we were all here and so the power of God worked through us because we were in the room. Isn't that so great? Now with Aeneas, Peter didn't have to do any of that because Aeneas wasn't a believer. So there wasn't a group of people around who believed in Christ waiting for something to happen. He's just laying there, probably on his own. Peter heals him and then explains, you know, Jesus Christ did this. Here, you've got this group of believers. So Peter puts them all outside so that none of them have the thought as the miracle happens, I had something to do with this. Now, Peter's still in the room, so it's possible some of them might have thought, oh, Peter did that, isn't he great? But we know from Acts and from the New Testament, the apostles are always very quick when people have thoughts or words like that to correct them and say, no, 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 don't worship me, don't put me up on that pedestal, I'm just a guy. Jesus did this through me, it's not me. So if people thought that, Peter would be quick to correct that. But he puts them all outside. So that everyone will be aware when the miracle happens, it's Jesus that did it. They had nothing to do with it. Then he kneels down and prays. Now in the Aeneas account, Peter explicitly says, Jesus Christ heals you. So it's clear 
that he knows he's doing it through Jesus' power and not his own. Here he doesn't say that. He just says, Tabitha, arise. But the fact that he kneels down and prays shows that Peter recognizes that he's not doing this under his own power. Peter's not praying to himself there. He's praying to Jesus. He's praying that Jesus would rise Tabitha from the dead. So we know that even though Peter doesn't say it explicitly, he understands that he's not the one ultimately responsible for this, that God is the one doing it through Peter. So he does all that, and then he doesn't even have to touch the body. The body's over there. He kneels down and prays, turns to the body, and says, Tabitha, arise. No fancy words, no incantations, uh, no interpretive dancing. Just Tabitha, arise. And what happens? Well, of course it works. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Once again, God's healing, immediate and fully effective. He doesn't say, Tabitha, arise, and then like her fingers start twitching, and then a few minutes later she starts breathing, and then a few minutes later she starts blinking, and then a few minutes later she opens her eyes. No. He says it, she opens her eyes, looks around, sees Peter, sits up, and then Peter offers his hand to her and helps her up, pulls her up out of bed, raises her up. And how cool is this? Like it's escalating. God's upping the ante, so to speak. Before, it was a healing of paralysis. Now it's a healing from death. Almost everyone would probably agree healing someone from death is more impressive than healing someone who's paralyzed. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. So now, he either calls everyone back in the room or brings, him, brings her out and calls them over to her and presents her alive. So the last they saw, she's lying on a bed in an upper room. She's dead. They're weeping. They're sorrowful. They're afraid, some of them, for themselves, for the future. They're sad because they lost a friend. And now, Peter kicks them all out of the room. And then he comes out of the room with her, and there she is alive, walking and talking, just like they remember her. And just like with the story of Aeneas, it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So again, Jesus does, through Peter, the physical healing, which matters to him. But it becomes that, calling, that call for people that Jesus has done even more spiritually. And so spiritually, God's up in the ante. Because you think about the Aeneas thing, it's like, okay, paralyzed in sin, like that's bad, that's not good. But someone who's paralyzed isn't dead. There are still things they can do on their own. They can talk, have conversations, they can eat. There's a lot of stuff they can do. So it's like, okay, like I was paralyzed in my sin. Yeah, there were things I couldn't do uh, for God or with God or whatever, but there was still some stuff I could do. But now, raising the dead. And someone who's dead can't do anything except lay there. In the same way that all of us are like Aeneas, all of us are like Dorcas. We were all dead in our sins and transgressions, Paul writes elsewhere in the New Testament. We were dead. We weren't just paralyzed. Unable to do anything to move towards God. Unable to do anything of worth in God's eyes. God says in Romans that all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. All the good things you do, not the sin, the good things are like filthy rags. Dorcas, with her acts of charity and her good works, which were not things she was doing to earn favor with God, those were things that flowed out of the fact that she believed they were a result of that. 
But those things don't earn her favor with God. God says, you can't barter favor with me. You can't barter with me with good deeds because they're nothing to me. Without Christ, your good deeds are meaningless. They're not worth anything. But that's okay. Your good deeds aren't necessary. Christ's good deed on the cross is the only one I need. And I credit that good deed to you even though you didn't do it. It became known, many believed in the Lord, we are like Dorcas. Like Dorcas, we were dead in our sins and transgressions, not just paralyzed. Unable to do anything of value in God's eyes. Even good things, which God acknowledges, yeah, these things you're doing, some of them are good things. But they won't earn favor with me. They won't get you to a better place with me. Because sin still exists. But, just like Dorcas, we have been raised from the dead. Jesus came to us in our death and he saw us. And he said to us, arise. And he held out his hand to us and pulled us up from death and he presented us alive. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, you were paralyzed and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. But through Jesus Christ, you have been healed, you have been brought to life, you've been raised up and you've been presented alive. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe, I've got both extremely bad news and extremely good news for you. So the bad news, you're spiritually paralyzed and you're spiritually dead and there's nothing you can do in of yourself to fix it. You can't get to God. And you're thinking, I came here this morning to hear this. This is horrible. And it is horrible news in of itself. But the good news is you don't need to do anything because Jesus did it for you. So just like Dorcas, who laying there, she didn't call Peter. She didn't give Peter instruction. Oh, you're about to raise me from the dead. You should probably do it like this. She was just laying there dead. In the same way, if you're here and you're not a believer, in your spiritual death, that immediate and fully effective spiritual healing is available to you right now. Jesus Christ, in an instant, can raise you up from the dead and present you alive. That's why he did. That's why he did for me. That's why he's done for everyone in this room who believes. Jesus Christ raises the dead. His death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, takes care of the problem of sin that existed between us and God. It heals us. It brings life to us where there was only death. Verse 43 is kind of a transition verse, uh, obviously part of this passage, but also kind of a foreshadowing and a taste of things to come next week. So to be continued, come back next week for the rest. But verse 43 says that Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. It's like, okay, an interesting piece of information. Next week they're going to come find him at the tanner's house, so that makes sense. But there's also some cool stuff here it says about Peter and how being a believer was transforming his way of thinking. Because Peter's a Jew. And a devout Jew would never stay in the house of a tanner. Because a tanner is a person who works with dead animal skins and dead animals. And so they're handling every day for their career dead animal skins, which would make them unclean according to Jewish law. So if Peter's staying in this tanner's house, He's going to become unclean, even if he doesn't handle the skins. If he handles dishes that Simon handled, he's going to become unclean. If he sits on furniture that Simon sat on, he's going to become unclean. If he uses the doorknob when he opens the door that Simon used, he's going to be unclean. By staying in that house, 
He's going to make himself ritually unclean because Simon is handling things that are unclean all the time for his job. But Peter stays here with Simon in this place that's unclean, which shows that his thinking was already changing from, okay, here are all the laws I have to follow, the rituals I have to follow, and that makes me clean and that makes me all right. To this idea of, no, I have Jesus. He raised me from the dead. What does it matter touching an animal skin? He saved me from all that, not because of things I've done, so it doesn't matter if I touch the skin or I don't touch the skin. Jesus says in his ministry, uh, when he was going preaching and teaching, he says, it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. He's like, food, it doesn't matter what you eat. It's not like eating the wrong thing makes you unclean. It's what comes out of a person that makes them unclean. From the heart comes sin and murder and hate and strife. These are the things, Jesus says, that makes a person unclean. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Jesus can. He knows our sinful hearts, and he heals them through the cross. So it's no longer, oh, I shouldn't be with the tanner because I'll touch these things and be unclean. It's like, no, I've got Jesus Christ. His blood covers me. He's dealing with the uncleanness that's inside me, not the things I'm going to touch or eat on the outside. And we'll see next week, this idea hasn't fully sunk in yet. It started, there's whispers of it here, but there are going to be some things uh, next week where, Simon, where Peter and God have this interaction and Peter, God encourages Peter to do things that would be unclean and Peter says, I can't do that, that's unclean. And God says, I'm God and I just told you to do this, you can do this. But next week. So Peter is being transformed in his way of thinking, in his way of living as a believer, shifting away from what do I need to do? How do I either earn God's favor or maintain God's favor? To know it's Jesus Christ. It's what he did for me. That is all I need. In conclusion, without Christ, we are in a state of sin, bedridden, paralyzed death. All of us who are believers, this was our state before we found Christ, before he found us and came to us. We were bedridden, we were paralyzed, we were dead. Those of you in this room who are not believers, that is your spiritual state right now. But, point two, good news, Jesus comes down to us in our state of bedridden, paralyzed death. Jesus, Peter didn't walk by Aeneas and say, ooh, I'd like to help you, but you're fully paralyzed. So do some exercises, get your legs a little less atrophied, I'll be back in six months, and then I can work with you. He doesn't go to Dorcas and say, so this death thing, you're going to have to do something about some parts of that, and then I can work with you. No. He comes to them in the state they're in and heals them. Jesus comes to us in our state of bedroom and paralyzed death. Like the song we sang, all those who feel content, all those who feel unworthy, all who are broken, all the thieves, whatever state you're in, Jesus comes to you in that state. You don't have to change. You don't have to get cleaned up. Like Emily prayed when she was praying, there's no one who's beyond the reach of God's grace. There's no one who's too dirty, who's too sinful, who's too fill-in-the-blank. And there's no one who's too self-righteous or too haughty or thinks too highly of themselves that God can't reach. He comes to us in the state we're in. And, point three, for those in the room who are believers, Jesus has healed you. He has raised you up. He has presented you alive. And if you're in the room and you're not a believer, that immediate and full 
healing, raising up, and presenting it alive is available to you right now. If that's something that's interesting to you and sparks some interest, if you came with someone today, talk to them about that. If you didn't, I'll be down front after the service. I'd be happy to talk to you as well. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you came to us in the state we were in, that you didn't require us to get cleaned up or get partly undead before you healed us. We thank you that your power is stronger than what we see in these miracles. How thrilling is it to think of a paralyzed person being healed and how much more thrilling to think of someone being raised from the dead. But how much more thrilling than that should it be for us to think that you have conquered and destroyed sin. You nailed it to the cross when you died and you rose from the dead and left it in the tomb. Pray, God, that you would remind us of that often this week, that we have been raised up, we have been healed, we have been presented alive, and that even as believers, that's something we still need every day. Every day we need to, be, we need to see you. We need to be reminded what is true of us. We need to be, re- be reminded that day by day you present us alive through your power and your love. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together with these songs. This my inheritance will never spoil or fade until he comes my salvation in heaven have my faith is my inheritance God's power will be its shield through Jesus Christ the 